And in a sense, what was always so important to me was I felt that I had missed out while I was at school and I didn't want other kids to miss out. And if there was something I could do on Tomorrow's World to really make this amazing world of science and tech and the incredible people who work in it really come to life, then that was something that I wanted to do. Welcome to episode one of the third season of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. On today's episode, we're sharing our conversation with Maggie Philbin, OBE, who's CEO of TeamTech. We talk about Maggie's tech journey from the theatre to multicolour swap shop and tomorrow's world. We delve into the great work of Teen Tech, her charity working with young people and schools to inspire the innovators of the future. Before we get to Maggie's interview, though, Paul, what's caught your eye in tech news this week? Well, over the last couple of weeks, there's been a, a number of uh, reports coming out. One that we can share in the, that I'm not going to go into in too much detail to today, but we can share in the links around the, the use of digital across leadership teams, which I thought was really interesting. But the big one, the Digital 2021 report from Simon Kemp and Hootsuite is out. And I think reading through that, not the whole 300 page report, but some of the stuff in the executive summary and delving into the report in a bit more detail, there were a few things that I thought were significant that I thought would just be worth sharing sharing. Some of the things that I pulled out were, you know, many people connected to the internet for the first time, which really in, in 2020, which really sort of chimes with what we were hearing in some of the interviews that we did last year, that there was an opportunity for people to connect in ways that they hadn't done before. And, and obviously more people coming to the internet for the first time as they tried to deal with the impact of COVID-19. We've also invested more time in digital tools than ever before, both old and new. I mean, Zoom was founded 10 years ago and the growth of that platform was seen in the last two years alone is just absolutely astonishing. Half a billion new users joined social media. The world now has 4.2 billion social media users. We spend more time on our phones than watching TV, which... Uh, you know, some of us do both at the same time. We're shopping more online. Online grocery orders are up 40%. 50% of internet users say they've ordered a takeaway online. Have you, Zoe? We have. Of course I have. Well, what do you take me for? <laughs> We're buying differently. Seven out of 10 of us are using social media to research and buy the products and services that, that we buy. Not necessarily a trend away from using Google, but I think a recognition that social media has an increasingly important role to play it's 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 not going away you know we're, we're still having conversations about good use of social media and it's it's going to play a more important role in helping us to decide where we spend where we donate and also with who but then the flip side i guess you know 3.2 billion people still aren't connected and there was a point made about women in developing nations still being very underrepresented when it comes to being online and access to online so there's still still sort of a, a big divide out there you know, I just thought it was worth pointing out or, or thinking about what we can learn from that. And I think the social media is still vitally important to organisations. It will be interesting to see how we balance that importance with the, also the growing sense of unease and I think divisiveness that we've seen in some of the channels, particularly in Twitter over, well, even recent days, but recent weeks and months. So, no, it's an important part of the calendar, that report. And I think it's seen some significant growth because of uh, what's happened with COVID-19. So we'll point to the um, to the report in, in the show notes. 
Sounds like a great resource. And certainly with uh, We Are Social, I'm always signposting organisations to them because I think it's such a great resource. And they do these weekly bite-sized mailings as well where they look at certain key issues, which are also really useful. Yeah, perhaps we can send a share a link so people can easily sign up to that in the show notes as well. What else has caught your eye? We discussed this at the um, at the outset of recording, but you know Zoe and I are both obsessed by music and books, so I wondered whether we ought to include a sort of a what is Zoe and Paul listening to and reading today? And uh, did you want to go first, Zoe? Yeah, so uh, there's a great book that I've been reading recently that I highly recommend. So it's called Humour, Seriously, Why Humour is a Superpower at Work and in Life by Jennifer Aker and Naomi Bagdonas. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Apologies if I'm not. But it's a fantastic, fantastic book by the two academics. They're very focused on things like organisational change and leadership. And it's a really smart book about how humour is a very underrated leadership tool how to use it at work and the whole hypothesis of it is start small you know don't worry about having to be a, a stand-up comedian at your uh, weekly team meeting no one's expecting you to be Billy Crystal but it's just about things like could you make your out of office a little bit more humorous rather than just a very pedestrian I'm not here today I'll be back on Monday it's, it's things like that so I think it's about how to use humor as a tool to really create more rapport with people and god knows we all need that at the moment working remotely and how to engage people how to encourage them to be a bit more perhaps open and vulnerable so it really made me rethink how to use humor in a work setting and it's a very practical and also as you might hope a very funny book as well excellent that's a good recommendation i might have to seek it out so we can um we can expect your your weekly weekly stand-ups to get really funny probably not that funny because I'm a massive nerd as as you know but I <laughs> I promise you right now Paul and you can hold me to account on this I will make them a bit funnier <laughs> <laughs> a, bit, a bit funnier in inverted commas I like that just as a complete aside but sort of related to this um I wondered what you felt about one of the things I'm considering is a subscription to Blinkist it's something that I, I think I trialed a, a while ago and never sort of really got to grips with do you know the app and do you use it have you used it in the past is this audiobooks? No. What Blinkist does is it does uh, 15 minute reads or audio books or audio clips of the sort of the synopsis and the major learnings from business books. So you can get a download of in 20 minutes of what the major talking points of, for example, humour seriously, what are the major points are, what are the major applications, some of the things that you can take away from that book and apply to your work today, almost without reading the book itself. Does that make sense? So, yeah, I just wondered whether you'd ever, ever, ever used it, which obviously you haven't, and whether it was something, whether it was something, I, I, I'm sort of looking at it and thinking, I can see the value of having a, a sort of a shortened version or an introduction to to the book and then going away and taking you know, buying the book and going through it in great detail. But this idea that you can sort of hack through, I guess, use a cheat code to learn the basics of a, of, a, of a business book without actually having read or held the physical book itself. I'm really torn about this, to be honest, because on the other hand, I I don't have a great deal of attention, as as, as you know, and I, uh, we're, we're busy, I'm busy, and something that saves time and just picks out bite-sized content is, in theory, really appealing. On the other hand, 
I'm going to sound like a complete Luddite, but I think half the pleasure is finding out the ideas for yourself, isn't it? Certainly, uh, that's always been my experience of reading. It's a bit like I was talking to someone recently who said, I only ever listen to podcasts at a one and a half speed so I can get through them more quickly. <laughs> and I just, I'm just not sure, is that a way to live your, your life? Do we need to do everything in this incredibly compressed bite size high speed way now is that what is that what life is I guess it's like you know watching the trailer for a film and then watching the film itself so you know you could you could see it in that way but it's you know for me it's just it's a it's a fairly expensive introduction or trailer to that to that book so it's just balancing out you know am I going to have time to sit down and read the book in its entirety possibly not could I sit down and, and, and read the pertinent sections if somebody pointed them out to me possibly um so it's it's just a sort of a balance i guess in terms of things that i'm reading i have well i have have a book that i'm reading at the moment but that's that's probably not as important as the one that's on my to read list which is clara and the sun and again uh, i'm going to stumble over this by by kazuo ishiguro ishiguro um and his first book since he was an awarded the nobel peace prize in for literature in 2017 and this is about ai companions um and that's dear to my heart at the moment because one of the the organizations i work with is a, a startup that is is building artificial intelligence companions or conversational AI and this is very very much up our street it's interesting because I challenged one of the founders of the business to to read it so I could interview him and get a review get his thoughts on it you know separate science fiction from science fact or science fact from science fiction and he said that he downloaded it as an audio book and I suggested to him that if he read it if he let it um, play in double speed then we could have the review quicker than, than if you listen to the whole thing at the right speed so maybe there is there is a trend here in listening to things at double speed or even time and a half one thing I recommend that you don't listen to at double speed is Jane Weaver's new album Flock which um, I'm playing to death at the moment so not related to digital or tech in any way shape or form and actually I've just bought it on vinyl but uh, my recommendation in, in terms of music is is that one so yeah Jane Weaver Flock it only came out last week I think last Friday but it is seriously seriously good and has lots of um, earworms that sort of seep in and get under your skin oh nice thanks Paul I have to check that out and like everyone else in the entire world at the moment I would like to recommend the bicep album Isles uh, which I think is just extraordinary completely amazing and they did a brilliant live stream on Dice the other week which you can actually catch up with this weekend at the time of recording uh, so I'm looking forward to that as well just going back to your book recommendation the Kazuo Ishiguro there's a really brilliant book that I would also recommend that's kind of similar by Ian McEwan called Machines Like Me it came out a couple of years ago and also really really thought-provoking on what it's like to have a robot companion and some of the ethical issues that arise in terms of your relationship with that robot uh, so it'd be really interesting I can't wait to read the Kazuo Ishiguro and see how it compares to the Ian McEwan yeah it's a big topic and actually it's one that we should cover you know we have good connections in that world mm -hmm. so it would be one that that would be interesting to cover and also the the, the role of companions in different in different contexts um in different you know the role of uh, companion AI in business, for example, or in charities. We should do it. In fact, maybe we should get a robot on and interview them. <laughs> do you know any? No, and I'm not going to be rude enough about some of our past guests to um, 
to, to suggest that we already have. No, we could definitely find one. We could try and do um, the company I'm working with, Alana. We could try and do an interview with Alana if you like. That would be quite a good one to, to try. Great. Bring on the robots. <laughs> so without further ado, here is our interview with Maggie Philbin. We are absolutely delighted to welcome Maggie Philbin to the podcast today. She is the CEO and co-founder of Team Tech. She has worked for over 30 years as a science and technology reporter from Tomorrow's World to Bang Goes the Theory. She has consistently worked to help improve diversity in science, technology and engineering. And she co-founded Team Tech in 2008. She is the chair of the UK Digital Skills Task Force served on the STEM Commission for Haringey, and she's an honorary member of the Women's Engineering Society. Maggie, a huge, very warm welcome to Starts at the Top. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to be here and honoured. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for coming along today. We're absolutely delighted to, to chat to you. I know that you're a hero to many of us who are working in tech, and as someone who's inspired so many others to work in this field, we'd love to hear where your journey with technology began. Yeah, it's quite interesting because if I think back to like my childhood and my dad, my dad was really quite interested in technology. So he had things which I know my friends were always really curious about, things like reel-to-reel tape recorders. And I was really interested in all of that. While I was at school, the word technology was never used in any shape or form. And so I don't think my love of tech was sewn at school. But in between school and uni, I worked for a while at a theatre and I worked as a stage electrician and and I also worked on sound. And strangely, I, I, at times I was given a ridiculous amount of responsibility, but it did mean that I had to learn very quickly. And I really enjoyed it. I didn't connect what I was doing there I mean because for me it was like earning a bit of money before I went to university and I was going to do a a drama and English degree so I think I was harboring thoughts of well maybe one day I will be on the stage or maybe I will be a producer but I did really enjoy working with tech. And then you know later on when in the days of you know when I was fortunate enough enough to work on Saturday morning telly. And that gave me so much insight into the the workings of television and how, you know, all of our live pictures actually got on the air. And, And my role on Swap Shop, you know, obviously involved filming as well as the live studios, but it also involved outside broadcasts. And I loved doing the outside broadcasts because to me, the feat of getting an image from some far flung part of Europe in some instances where you'd be standing in a snow-covered square in Denmark, all of these pictures and the sound, and then you had to be able to hear talk back with Noel in the studio. I mean, I just thought it was just remarkable. And I loved chatting to all of the people who work on OBs. So I think it came, it sort of was something that grew very organically. And it was obviously the most extraordinary opportunity and wonderful stroke of luck that a Tomorrow's World producer watched one of my outside broadcasts where I think I was explaining how a cotton mill worked and he thought oh she's quite good at explaining things maybe she'd like to do a science program 
And I know back in the day, producers could make those kind of decisions. So a few weeks later, I found myself doing a programme that you won't remember, but was called The Show Me Show, which was like a very poppy Tomorrow's World. And then Tomorrow's World saw me do The Show Me Show. And then I started work on Tomorrow's World. And it was, I always felt like I'd come home. I loved the opportunity to handle really exciting pieces of technology, often very much in their infancy, and talk to so many interesting people. And it was only then that, if I'm honest, I had any real sense of the breadth of what tech and the world of science and engineering and uh, and digital might actually mean. So I just feel I've just been on one very, very long university course, <laughs> which has lasted over 30 years. And I feel immensely privileged. So such an amazing career and so much learning and change over that time as well obviously tomorrow's world was such an absolutely iconic program and absolutely revolutionary did you know you were making something revolutionary at the time did it feel like that it did feel very special in that at the time the level of commitment by the reporters the producers was total to that program we loved doing it and we really appreciated what a wonderful working environment it actually was so in that sense that you know and we really cared about it if something went slightly wrong in an item which obviously was always the moment that people at home sat up and started to pay attention we would pour over it the next day about why did that happen you know why didn't it work what went wrong so there was a sense at the time of it being as I said an incredibly special program but I think the thing that I had no concept of at the time was just how influential it was being. I did have a sense of the audience because one of the things, having worked in children's for four years, quite a few of the people who used to watch me on Swap Shop started to watch Tomorrow's World because I was on it. And so I used to get lots of what I used to call the the wobbly handwriting (laughs) letters, which were an absolute delight, and many of which are up in my downstairs loo. So I did have a sense that that young audience was there, but, but I didn't know that so many of them would ultimately work in science and, and tech because of Tomorrow's World, because the format of the programme, you know, where it was just such a wonderful mix. You knew that if something you were watching on the show was a bit dull, that we'd soon get through that bit and there'd be something that you were interested in. The diversity, I think, of the programme was very attractive. And also the scheduling of the programme, that so many people watched Tomorrow's World because really they were waiting for Top of the Pops to come on. And so... That was actually really quite helpful because obviously it drove our figures up, but also it meant that perhaps people who would not normally have watched Tomorrow's World, had it been on a Wednesday night, did watch it. And then they thought, actually, this, you know, maybe I'll watch this again. You know, I quite enjoyed seeing that item about hands-free mobile, phone, you know, or whatever it was. It was incredibly influential and I, and I had no sense at the time. I didn't, certainly didn't think about myself as a role model in any shape or form. But, um, you know, so many people have said, well, you know, the reason I'm working in tech or a Dame Wendy Hall, who I've got massively in awe of, she said, I'm I'm working 
in this field because of you and I sort of why and she said well because I watched tomorrow's world and you know you always look so normal and you wore the kind of clothes I wanted to wear you know which incidentally I was often told off about by the tomorrow's <laughs> world editor because he didn't always approve of them um but yeah so so that is so amazing to hear I'd forgotten it was on a Thursday and I'd forgotten about Top of the Pops, but absolutely guilty as charged. I would sit there and watch that and then go into Top of the Pops. But the other thing that I was just thinking about and thinking about the work you do now is invariably I'd be sat there with my mum and dad. It was a, it was total that hour or two hours sat in front of the TV watching scheduled television. It's just something that's completely and utterly disappeared from from yeah. our lives. Yeah. And that shared experience, because it would mean that, say, you you were interested in something or you'd seen something and that made you then think, oh, maybe I'd like, you know, maybe I'll look into being a nuclear physicist or whatever it was, that your parents might have seen that as well and might be supportive. They'd seen it at the same time. And, and that's something which now is actually quite hard because, you know, with some of the work I do with teenagers and young people is you can say right you know there are all these opportunities in for instance game design and their parents might be oblivious to this going no you're not messing around with that computer and those games again um you know think about accountancy <laughs> and so that is yeah the fact that it was a you know something that the family watched it was it was it was very very different and obviously, and obviously there were only well, when I joined tomorrow's world there were only three channels I'm trying to think had yeah there were three channels when I first started uh, in in telly yeah you had no choice <laughs> it's really funny you must have seen my notes because I've literally I've written down here but I wrote this down about an hour ago we've been going on walks around the block every single morning with my with our kids to, to just start the day off on the right on and the how right old foot they? literally they're eight and twelve nine and twelve oh my god get fired uh they're they're nine and twelve and one of the reasons we walk around the block is to keep them active and they're they're both really sporty and they're missing their sport at the moment so it's one way to keep them active and I just keep saying to them <laughs> having worked for a firm of accountancy, a firm of accountants, I keep saying to them, you need to keep doing this. You need to keep the exercise up. You need to keep doing your athletics or you'll become an accountant. <laughs> um, that's that's become my threat to them on a daily basis. But it's, it's, it's interesting just thinking about exactly that conversation I'd also written down that you know the careers advice that I'd been given over the over the course of my school career certainly in the 90s was all geared towards academic qualifications and things like that not things that I love uh, you know and I loved I grew up with computer games my kids are growing up with computer games and you're absolutely right you know that industry has so many opportunities within it so many from script writing to acting to the the coding to the box design you know it goes on and on and on and on all of these things that are completely and utterly wide open to them and it's well that was going to be my, my sort of main question is, is you know how how do you sort of make or how do you help kids see all that and not get directed down the the natural paths that education often leads them down I mean obviously everyone has their own views on this but we always start where the young people are and it doesn't matter whether they're interested in in football or game design or animals or whatever it is they're interested in that's that's where we start and then you build on that because if a child or a teenager is interested in something they they're always going to be more willing to invest a bit of time with you if it's something they actually care about. So we, we kind of flip it slightly. Um, and in terms of how do you stop them being kind of marshaled down 
a route which may feel very familiar to their teachers or to their parents that can be that can be much harder but it is around what we've always done at team tech is we've worked with what looks like a relatively small cohort of young people but in a very focused way and where we have the best success is where we get a teacher buy-in and then the teacher starts to really see and understand what all of those different opportunities might be and then the teacher is able to start embedding examples into what they're talking about in the classroom which immediately makes their lessons better because they're much more relevant and they're relevant not only because they are pointing towards emerging and existing careers as opposed to careers that may have been thriving 10 years ago but they also feel much more relevant to young people and they and so they have a more of a resonance so that the the teaching ultimately uh, can be more compelling and more more successful but it is really difficult and you know and I'm speaking now from a personal point of view (laughs) you know I think feel a lot of the curriculum is outdated and a lot of the approach is really outdated and it is fulfilling a function that might have worked 20 years ago and if it was delivering for the majority of young people in terms of really helping them feel confident in themselves about their own future then you would go fair enough but I don't believe it is doing that so you know one of the things you know what what we've you know tried to do with teen tech is you know we don't ape the curriculum we provide things which we feel are of genuine benefit to those young people whether they are eight years old or whether they're 18 years old and we do it in a way that we feel is engaging and fun and will really help them understand their own potential you know which is a slightly different approach so we're not saying right if you do this you will get an A as it was or whatever it is is it a nine I get so I get confused about how the GCSEs are marked but following this may not get you top marks in your exams but it might make you far more employable when you leave school or you you leave university so it makes us sound slightly us sound slightly subversive but um, you know that's the boat I'm rowing is I, I want to do things that really genuinely help young people you know, because particularly at the moment, you know, there's this narrative of, you know, you've fallen behind, you're missing out, you know, oh, you won't be able to take your exams, you know, and, and, and all of this. And I, and I think we certainly don't want to add to all of that stress. We want to make take some of that stress away and help them perhaps look at things slightly differently and build on their interests. This is so interesting, Maggie, because in a previous episode of the podcast, Paul and I were talking about exactly this theme with um, an an academic who's trying to do something very different and very disruptive in academia, because like you, he also has some frustrations about whether education system is is at today and whether it's truly preparing young people for the tech skills they need when they enter the workforce. And I have to say that um, from my perspective and, and Paul's perspective, so my children are similar-ish age to, to Paul, so mine are eight and ten, it feels like there's a big gap between where uh, schools are at with technology at the moment, particularly in terms of the curriculum and also looking at some of the remote learning as, as well. And and where all of our children will need to be in the future with careers in robotics and AI and goodness knows what will be happening in, in gaming by then. 
So I wanted to ask you, what kind of tech skills do you think that the young people of today are going to need when they enter the, the workforce? Well, you're not going to believe this, but um, as I speak, some of the Teen Tech team at the moment, we've, we're just about to start a whole new raft of live sessions and one of the new ones is on aspects of robotics so they're actually in discussion as I speak with some experts at uh, Cardiff University about what that will actually involve. To answer your question I feel that in terms of the way that students learn you can break it down into two sets of things that there are skills so um you know learning how to code you know you know robotics you know maths etc so and these are skills which can be learned and actually they can be learned in a relatively quick amount of time now i'm not saying you can become an absolute you know professor of robotics in six weeks i'm not saying that but i'm saying that you know those these are these are skills which can be learned but in you know the world that we're living in, there are certain qualities that are really helpful for young people to have. And these qualities take years to learn. You can't just swan into a classroom or do an online session and go, right, we want you all to be bold, creative thinkers. We want you to be independent thinkers. And we want you to be able to work in teams. And we want you to feel, you know, really resilient so that when things don't go quite right the first time you've you know, you've got like the staying power to to keep at it. You know, those things take years. And unfortunately, I don't feel that the way education is structured always enables students to develop those skills. You know, the reason being is they're very hard to examine. Um, you know, how do you examine a kid and say, right, um, let's just grade you for your bold thinking. That's quite hard. How do we grade you for your teamwork? And because it can't be easily measured it gets kind of kicked into the long grass as somehow this nice they often referred to as soft skills but these are fundamental qualities and these are the things that get you hired into a, a company and these are the things that help you become successful particularly at a time like now when nobody knows what jobs are going to be around in a year's time let alone in five years time or in 10 years time so it's giving students just that, I don't know, just that little bit of room. I often feel they need a bit of room to breathe then, actually. They need a bit of room to breathe and a bit of room to be happy and understand their different strengths and the fact that you don't have to be good at everything. Because I think sometimes our systems kind of dent that into you, don't they? I was going to say, I think one of the things that I, I recognise certainly as a, somebody that recruited people into, I worked for a big accountancy firm and I recruited people in, so I had a look at lots of CVs. And when it comes to young people who are going into first jobs or looking for that opportunity for a first job, a lot of the CVs were very much based around the academic qualifications, whereas what we're looking for in a, in a corporate world might be leadership qualities or, or those sorts of things. And I'd have people saying to me, well, I can't, you know, I can't do a LinkedIn profile. I don't have a very good CV because I've done nothing. And I think, well, how, hold on a minute. Let's just think, were you captain of the football team? Were you, you know, in the rowing team? Have you been in situations where you've led teamwork? I'd look for people that had skills, particularly in, in a field where I was working at the time, sort of community management, social media management, that sort of thing. People that had shown or could demonstrate that they'd created something, that they'd brought people together, that they'd 
hosted meetings or whatever it might be. And those are the sorts of skills that you, you're absolutely right. They're not marked and they, they certainly don't come through because I don't think that the business world is doing a good enough job of telling young people what they actually need. Because I think young people still look at the business world that they might move into and think academic qualifications, and certainly parents would do, academic qualifications will get you to where you need. It's not right. A lot of the organisations that, and, and I've worked for them in the past, a lot of other organisations are, are very similar. Academic qualifications are dropping further and further down the list of things that they are looking for. They are literally going out and recruiting people based on the fact that they don't have academic qualifications. Yeah. So really interesting that these two worlds collide and that educators, employers and people like you running organisations like Team Tech can bring those people that, together to have that conversation to say this just needs to change because we're all looking at the wrong qualities in different orders and it's confusing yeah I mean I, I really would stick my neck out and say that um you know some of this comes from a, a top-down approach because I think teachers and schools completely un completely understand this you know and they want to be able to really teach and to support learning that's why they've become teachers and you know they have endless uh, you know I, I have so much respect for the work that they are willing and prepared to do with young people who may for whatever reason be challenged in different ways and it's awful to hear their frustration at the fact that sometimes the system doesn't support them to do that and my sort of theory <laughs> is that one of the problems is that a lot of people suggesting the way education ought to be have had the benefit of going to schools which are maybe a private schools or leading grammar schools where yes you do the academic stuff but you also have this wealth of other extracurricular activities and people being brought into the school who really are inspiring you know because the school has a, an extraordinary alumni network so you're colliding with lots of interesting minds and they forget about that aspect of their school you know and they focus on well you know when I was at school and it's jolly good that we you know really go into the minutiae of grammar and that's something that so many parents have discovered over lockdown when they've been going what my daughter's I, you know, nine and she's being asked about you know I don't know adverbial subjunctives or whatever they were and it is just quite crazy because Unfortunately, uh, you know, for many schools, they do not have the time or the resources to do all of that lovely other stuff. And it's the lovely other stuff which has given those politicians the ability to succeed. It hasn't been them following a, a very tightly controlled academic curriculum, you know, and I'm quite an academic person, so I'm not knocking academia. I'm, I'm just saying that that more holistic approach to education is, is actually very important for, for young people. And, and sometimes I do feel like I'm banging my head against a brick wall. Because as you say, employers get it, teachers get it, the kids certainly get it because they come to life when they're given these opportunities. I agree. I mean, I have some, I mean, I love the school that my kids go to, but I, I absolutely Think, as you say that the priority for our children has got to be about nurturing that curiosity and that lateral thinking and that problem solving and, and and that emotional intelligence 
And it's so important how they learn as much as what they learn and what they get exposed to outside the classroom. So I completely support what you've said. Tell us then about team tech. So you've touched a bit on team tech, but tell us more about how you do it and also what's changed about how you work during the pandemic. Yeah, well, um, you know, team tech came into existence in 2008 and there were Three, I suppose, drivers behind it happening. The first one was I'd gone to an innovation conference, which was amazing in the Thames Valley. Extraordinary things being shared. And I thought, you know what, this is great, but young people ought to have access to all of this because this is so exciting. And then I was asked to do a conference. I, I often get asked to do sort of keynotes on why don't we have more women in engineering, et cetera, et cetera. And this was another of those. And, and I said, you know, I, I really am fed up with the sound of my own voice. Why don't we actually go talk to some kids about this? And I think it would be interesting to get their take on it. So we went and made some short films with a school who were incredibly cooperative because I asked them, you know, please don't prime the students we want genuine answers from them and we're not going to make you know the students or the school look stupid but we there's no value in this unless they're actually honest and these little films were really moving you could see all of that curiosity and enthusiasm for tech on the one hand and then when you talk to them about you know the way I'm going to say this is 2008 you know science and tech was being taught in their schools their little shoulders coming down you know, no well you know they it, there was an absolute disconnect and so team tech was you know my the driver behind it was right well let's just connect these worlds um, let's do something which really brings the students absolutely into contact with all of these exciting people and my own daughter she was at school at the time and had absolutely no interest in tech whatsoever and so I could see with Rose that whatever is happening within the whole school curriculum I I could see firsthand that it wasn't working so yeah so all of those things happened at the same time and we I would say there's a, a lovely boat Chris Dodson who at them was he headed up the IOD in the south uh, and he was brilliant because he sort of said well do it then and I without Chris going well do it then <laughs> I don't think I would have done it I would have just done the what we ought to do thing and so I thought, okay let's do it so we ran an event which we thought was going to be a one-off and and then team tech developed legs of its own which was just wonderful and now we work with sort of face-to-face in normal circumstances about twelve thousand young people a year and then many many thousands virtually and it's been i feel possibly the most important thing i've ever done i, I would rate it higher than working on things like tomorrow's world because i think There are so many young people with so much potential sitting in classrooms, sometimes being branded as disruptive or disinterested, and they've just got so much to give. And, you know, just helping those young people understand that, I think, is a, you know, it's a great thing to do. And obviously, I don't do it on my own. I've got a lovely team and then about 3000 volunteers and lots of lovely partners and sponsors who work with us to make it all to make it all happen. And in a funny kind of way. I know COVID, you know, it meant that we had to pivot very quickly back in March 2020 to a completely virtual delivery. But this accelerated something that had always been on the any other business um, item of our meetings where, 
uh, you know, we were so running so fast on our hamster wheel of all of these live events in schools and company sites and festivals. And we'd always said, oh, we ought to have, you know, Team Tech TV. We should be doing this. And it was like, yeah, well, let's talk about that next time. And so we, well, that's what we're doing now. And, and it's been terrific. We were very fortunate because in our Team Tech team, we have a number of national broadcasters for science and tech. And so we had that interesting dynamic that obviously they're used to doing stuff through a screen and bringing things to life and understanding what's interesting and how long something should go on for when you're doing it in a on-screen format. But they also had the massive advantage of having worked with teen tech with our real world delivery. And because we focus on students who in areas of the country where you know they they may be disadvantaged for one reason or another they had worked with those children so they understood you know that this isn't about students being all pert and paying attention and ready to go these about right well impress me <laughs> say what you've got to say they understood how to engage with those young people and i think that was mass- has been massively helpful and so we've you know developed the offer this month we will hit our 100th live session since then and yeah it's been great fun it's brilliant it's like running your own telly channel (laughs) we've heard that from so many different organizations a variation on that 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 this has just accelerated something that was sort of sitting there in the background and certainly you know zoe and i both work in nominally in digital transformation whatever that means you know cultural change you know helping organizations look at the world around them and figure out how they ought to be operating and um it's just one of those things that went through went around um, as a meme immediately after COVID-19 broke that you know digital transformation has just happened it wasn't your IT director that did it it wasn't the CEO <laughs> that did it it was COVID-19. It's a virus. Yes. Yeah exactly it was a virus and and you know I think I reacted to it in a way that well if they think that's digital transformation then you know they definitely need our help but I think what you've said is is absolutely true. So many organisations of different types and sizes looking at what they do from a digital perspective and having to reinvent, even down to to all sorts of different things. But if you even look at things like cinemas and theatres and all sorts of different um, organisations that have just had to accelerate something that was sort of nodding away in the background um, and, and sort of not getting looked at. So it's really interesting. There was something else as well, though, for us, um, because one of the reasons that we hadn't, we'd always done some virtual delivery, but one of the reasons previously we hadn't gone as big on it as you might have expected us to, was we were really mindful of the young people we most wanted to reach who were Mm. disadvantaged and the schools who we most wanted to help, who didn't have perhaps the level of technical expertise um, or access to devices, et cetera, et cetera. We're always really mindful of that. But the thing that COVID has done is it, it pitched even the most reluctant school into having to do it. And so that meant it was kind of, a, it was both push me, pull you kind of thing because the schools were like, Whoa, what do we do? And we, you know, we were able to go, well, look, we can help you do it. We're still working with schools on what is their first live virtual delivery to their students, you know, which is almost unbelievable when we're nearly a year into all of this. But certainly there were many, many schools who we know that had we done, created this whole virtual delivery platform would not have engaged with it. 
yeah, so it was um, the right time. And it ends up being a hybrid model, which is what most of us are going to fall back mm. into anyway. If you think about business, we're not getting back into the office anytime soon. So a mixture of office work, homework, all those things are going to start to, to bleed in. What's the, is there, um, I know this is probably a really unfair question to ask, but is there one big success that you could sort of outline for us from that programme? Someone or a school that have just hit the stratosphere? There are a number, but, you know, and just I might change a couple of details so that it's not completely recognisable, if you see what I mean. Um, We pick the subjects and the approach very carefully. And one of the most satisfying things has been seeing students who teachers tell us have had issues at school in terms of any kind of willingness to engage in in, in what's happening in the classroom, become really enthusiastic and really want to deliver and work on a particular project. And a couple of weeks ago, we had, um, it was a a game design session and it's just so lovely because the students update us on their progress and they send across all of the things that they're making and just so imaginative. And anyway, the school wanted us to choose a one particular project as the most outstanding project, um, which is not something we would normally do. Anyway, much deliberation amongst the game designers and all the rest of it and then they chose this project that this student had done put it this way the the teacher went outside the school deck gates ran another teacher sent an email went ran outside the school gates to let this student's mum know about this success and she just burst into tears because of the kind of history previous you know history so it's things like that which make it all worthwhile it's those students who you know the teachers say this could be the turning point and and that's what we want to do it's great for you know the students who you know the shiny students and you know it's it's great that they have an outlet for their creativity and they can go steps further and that's obviously wonderful as well from a personal point of view that moment where some child realizes actually I hadn't thought about myself as being a success, but maybe I am, is quite a special moment. Because I can remember that moment when it happened to me. And I think maybe that's why I I identify with those kids so much. I remember, and there'll be so many people who can do this. I remember a teacher pulling me over and saying, you know what, it was a French teacher saying, I don't understand why you always just fail French, which I had. I was nothing if not consistent. I had just failed French um, right the way through secondary school. She said, there's no reason why you should be doing this because you can do it. And um, I thought, oh, well, you know, she thinks I can do it. And to cut a long story short, I went on and did A-level French, got a grade A in it because someone believed in me. Someone believed I could do it. So I have a, I'm very much on the side of the kids who, for whatever reason, have either always been told they're not going to amount to very much or believe that, or in can't see anything in the way that school measures success that is relevant to them. And um, yeah, yeah. So I'm I like to bat off their wickets if you see what I mean. Yeah, that's such a a, a brilliant thing to do, and it, it sounds like you're through Teen Tech are giving these children some some much needed support and also expanding their horizons. If we could talk about some of the fantastic work that you've done in diversity, because I know you've, you've done some brilliant pioneering work in that area, particularly around the STEM agenda, and thinking about your career and the boundaries you have had to break as a sort of pioneering woman in tech, were there challenges that, that you faced along the way? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, some of the, some of the challenges were sort of self-inflicted, if you see what I mean, in a funny kind of way. So, you know, when I first started working telly, I always felt like the student what has been incredibly lucky and got this amazing job, uh, which actually was a pretty apt description. That was what I was. Um, and, but I always felt like that. I was always waiting for the, the tap on the shoulder. So I'd had four years of learning, uh, you know, my craft, if you like, with Swap Shop. And then when I started on Tomorrow's World, I actually hesitated after I was off, when I was offered Tomorrow's World. I didn't accept immediately because I was so concerned that I wasn't a scientist. And I was just really aware of what the road that I might have to go along. I wasn't worried about the work that I would have to do. I wasn't worried about the, you know, the kind of input I would have to make. I was aware it could be a rocky road. And certainly for the first year of that I did Tomorrow's World, I was so grateful for the support that I got from my boss while I learned the ropes. And also while I made Tomorrow's World, which was initially, you know, I was a round peg in a square hole, but I made the hole a lot rounder. And in a sense, what was always so important to me was I felt that I had missed out while I was at school and I didn't want other kids to miss out and if there was something I could do on Tomorrow's World to really make this amazing world of science and tech and the incredible people who work in it really come to life then that was something that I wanted to do I wanted people to feel part of a world that perhaps while I was at school had felt like it wasn't something that was for me However, one of the things that I think I was very lucky about was that joining Tomorrow's World at the time that I joined the program and also joining it with the experience that I'd had because my experience in children's was working with some amazing women. Women led BBC Children's. There was an incredible person, um, Monica Sim at the time, who was head honcho, Rosemary Gill, who was this extraordinary creative force behind who invented the whole concept of Saturday mornings and they were amazing amazing women so that was my first job so I was working with great women so I went into Tomorrow's World and when I joined that program I joined it obviously Judith Ham was there and there were a sea of really bright oh a pussycat <laughs> I know it's a podcast, but I have just seen your wonderful cat. You've got to tell me what your cat's called now, just to make sense of what I'm saying. <laughs> I've distracted you now. His his name's his name's Prince, and he acts like a king. Absolutely, yeah. He was just like making his move. Yeah, yeah. And you know, there were great female producers, researchers. The deputy editor was female, and that was a t- really terrific and and supportive environment. But it hadn't always been like that. And if you look back at the Tomorrow's Worlds of the 1960s, that blokey kind of approach shines through. And that's because it was a programme, you know, presented by blokes, produced by blokes, edited by blokes. And it had a very different feel. So I, I do think I was just incredibly fortunate. And of course, I just thought the whole working world was like that, um, which, of course, it, it isn't. 
I feel I was very, very fortunate. You know, so coming back to that that first year on Tomorrow's World, I, I think I owe the editor at the time, David Filkin, who gave me that opportunity, was was also very wise because when that during that first year, I was still doing Saturday morning telly. I was doing Radio One. I was also flying out and doing bits for the holiday program or whatever it was called. And he sort of took me into his office one day and he said, listen, I, what you absolutely need to decide is what you are. He said, I think it would be so much more helpful for you if you did that. And, it, and it's quite interesting because that wouldn't happen now because people do all sorts of different roles on the telly. But at the time, that was very wise advice. And it was hard to make that. Well, the decision wasn't hard. I knew I wanted Tomorrow's World. It was absolutely what I wanted to do. It was hard saying goodbye to the other things, but it definitely enabled me to focus and ultimately was a, you know, one of those little life-changing, a little decision that had massive, massive impact. So I was very grateful to that. And then I think maybe if there was another hiccup along the way is how it was definitely quite hard for me you know, once I had a young baby and, you know, trying to juggle what were rather at times inflexible demands at that time led to me deciding to leave um, the programme. And that actually, you know, it broke my heart, but I wasn't prepared to compromise what I felt my daughter needed at the time. And, and you know, and again, the world has changed and you know, there is much more thought given to how you might support someone when they first have a, a child, you know, whether that whether it's a bloke or whether it's a woman, that's really, it, it's an important time and it does change your life. And it's crazy to depend, it doesn't, to, to pretend it doesn't change your life. You know, it's one of the biggest things I feel that companies can do, because if you invest so much in a person, don't, make it hard for them by trying to make them work in exactly the same way that they might have worked before because they can still be a massive if not more value if you're just a little bit more creative in how you support people at the, the right time. I think that's exactly right and in fact one of the reasons I've been working for myself for the last eight years is because I've got young children and I didn't want to justify having to go to their nativity play or to go to their their parents evening. I think we've got to give parents and everyone else who's got caring responsibilities a bit more trust and a bit more leeway as employers and that's what I try and give to my team. I know, Maggie, you're a very busy woman. I've got a question here that we've had from Twitter, which is is very relevant to what we were just talking about. And this is from Peter Lane. He says, does Maggie believe there are enough science and technology broadcasts aimed at young people, teenagers, and those with no science background? Uh, And Peter's also said that he found Tomorrow's World was the most accessible programme for him. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on that very interesting question because I'm sure if you did an analysis of how many shows there are on telly which um, in one way or another talk about science and tech there's probably far more now but the issue is they're not going out at prime time they're tucked away and as we say you know we no longer have a uh, you know the luxury of a curated schedule we make up our own schedules so it's very easy to miss things or think oh I wouldn't be interested in that and you don't ever know what it's what it's about you know I think that there absolutely is room for a program 
like Tomorrow's World, but the reason Tomorrow's World was so influential, and I and I feel obviously slightly biased here, um, and so good, was the fact it was on 40 weeks a year. It was on at the same time, and as I say, it was in a, a scheduled position, which meant, I always say that it's the same thing with any kind of our outreach activity. We never believe in anything which is just a, a one-off event. We always have a whole series of things for students to uh, go forward with, which lasts years in some cases. And that was the same with Tomorrow's World. It was always there. It wasn't just a one-off program. And I mean, I love, don't get me wrong, I love doing Van Gogh's The Theory, but we had, that was a series of eight programs often broken up by you know it was a bank holiday or a football match or whatever the the show then waited another two two weeks so that isn't going to have anywhere near the same kind of impact or be able to build an audience and I think it's never been more important to have a program which helps families and and young people understand you know because obviously it's about it's not just about potential careers in tech though that's important because every career will involve digital as we know but it's also because if you have an under some understanding of science and or critical thinking so much of the nonsense that we're experiencing at the moment wouldn't be happening Dr. Zond and Dr. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, uh, Dr. Chris is really. I think it's so clever the way it talks to to kids about STEM. God, what's it called? I should know. It's Operation Ouch. I think mm. it's, it's brilliant. Um, but something that's aimed at adults as much as children. Mm. I can't think of anything like that. No, there's a few bits and pieces that have sort of come through on Netflix. But again, you know, you have to you have to seek it out, and you know. You're not likely to do that if Netflix is sort of forever throwing drama. Yeah, maybe there's room for tomorrow as well to come back. Mm -hmm. It could be, really gap in the market. And top Um, of the pops. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for listening to episode one of season three. We'll be back next week with another episode. As usual, please send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel that you will do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter where it starts at the top one. That starts at the top one. And you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. And with the news today that UK businesses have been caught buying five star Google reviews, Please leave us your five-star review if your podcast app allows it. Thank you to all our listeners and we'll speak to you soon. Speak to you soon.